Savras is the god of divination magic in the Faeronian pantheon. He has deep insight into both past and future events in the Forgotten Realms. He disseminates such information out to his clergy for them to discern on their own. I'm Ben Dignan, and welcome once again to Religion in the Realms. Titles Savaras goes by the following titles The All Seeing, The All Seeing One, Lord of Divination Magics, He of the Third Eye, The Diviner, The Third Eye, and Divination's Lord. Savaras has no known aliases in the Forgotten Realms. Portfolio and Domains Savaras's portfolios are Divination Magic, Fate, and truth. Savras's suggested domains for 5th edition are Arcana and Knowledge. Appearance and Manifestations Savras looks to be an older human man with a translucent and crystalline form. Upon his forehead is his glowing third eye. All noise extraneous to him is muffled as he moves about. His favorite weapon, as listed, is the Eye of Savras, a dagger, though no description of this weapon was given in the sources I used. Savras manifests typically through two forms. The first is that of an unblinking eye that stares intently at those it manifests before. Through this eye, Savras can cast any spell available to him or create any magical effect upon those looking upon the eye. The second manifestation is either a vision of the future or a vision of the past. These visions are meant to communicate some needed knowledge. Often though, it is left up for the viewer to discern, given that these visions are often of an obscure nature. Savras is served by and makes use of the following creatures. Demoraxes, purrs, spectators, spell haunts, whiz shades, and any mundane animal that is somehow able to speak like any other humanoid. In particular, Savras has shown a favoritism towards calico and gray house cats, lapdogs, fish, and birds. Savras can show his favor through the appearance of water opals, white pearls, or blue quartz gemstones. He may show his disfavor through the appearance of powdered sadros, a spell component worthless in all divination spells. Abilities it is said that Savras has knowledge of all that has transpired upon the surface of Faerun, and all that will transpire in the future. Now there is two paths of divergent thought on what control Savras has on the timeline. Some think he is the guide of fate, shepherding it forward. Others think he has no control over future events, cursed to know what will happen and without any agency to affect it. Savras can maintain any divination spell he casts indefinitely. The knowledge of any event that has transpired in the past is readily available to Savras, while Savras can look forward to see multiple different futures. The mechanics of the following ability confuses me, but if I'm reading the ability correctly, Savras has a 75% chance of dodging and evading melee, ranged, and spell attacks. Such a high percentage is representative of his ability to see into the future effectively and anticipate his opponent's actions. Though this is a second edition mechanic and I could always be misinterpreting what is written given my lack of familiarity with that edition. This other ability is far more clear to me. As combat goes on, Savras gains a consecutive plus one bonus each round he faces an opponent, both with later initiative rolls and with his attack rolls. I take it you rolled initiative at the top of each round in 2nd edition, much like you would, say, in BX or even earlier editions of Dungeons & Dragons. With his touch, Savras can render a target in a state of indecisive paralysis, along with dealing out damage. The target cannot attack, defend, or perform any mental and physical activity. They are weighed down by the constant vision of all potential futures that flash through their minds for 2d6 plus 2 rounds. 
Savras is immune to all charm spells and abilities and illusion spells and abilities, even if cast by a fellow deity. While not one of his abilities, Savras's own crystal ball, which he calls Truth Seer, has a host of special abilities. For one, it resides both in Savras's and Mistra's divine realms at the same time. Mistra can learn from Truth Seer all that Savras knows, while it allows Savras the ability to determine whether Mistra, Azuth, or anyone else has asked something of Truth Seer. Savras may allow his devoted to look within Truth Seer. Any mortal who gazes into this crystal ball has always remained silent as to what they saw, though it is often stated that what they see changes the course of their lives. Personal History With my best estimate, Savras was a lesser god sometime before or during the Dawn Cataclysm. Savras was a regional deity, with his worship limited just to the southern reaches of Faerun. Though there is some conflicting information about that, but we'll touch on that later in the podcast. Specifically, he was worshipped in Harua, Durpar, Estagun, Dambrath, and Var the Golden. Small pockets of his worship existed in Kalmshan, Thethir, and Om. During his time, Savras was considered to be a deity of wizards, not just diviners and divination. That is one of the primary reasons why he came into conflict with Azuth later on. Savras is thought to have been a Halruan wizard before attaining the status of a deity. After the first Mistra's emergence following the fall of Netheril, Savras would engage in a wizard battle with Azuth. Both fought for the portfolio of wizards in Mistra's favor, though it has long been rumored that they fought for her heart as well. Azuth had no deific standing at this point, but he was still a strong archmage with superb proficiency in arcane magic. The battle between Savras and Azuth would carry on for a good number of years, with neither one coming close to victory. Savras had an advantage at first due to his keen mind and preparation. However, Azuth would work his way back to taking the advantage for himself. Their battle would end climatically as they split a mountain and ended up creating a deep lake. The middle Mushkar region in the border kingdoms is still riddled with wild magic areas long thought to be tied to this battle. Azuth would imprison Savras in a scepter of Azuth's creation. This artifact would go on to be called the Scepter of Savras. Azuth first became the first magister and later accepted the gift of apotheosis from Mistra. When this battle happened is a bit muddled. No concrete date is given. Leading to further frustration is that some sources say it occurred after the Dawn Cataclysm or during the Dawn Cataclysm. It doesn't help either that most of the events during the Dawn Cataclysm do not have concrete dates themselves. Rather, the Dawn Cataclysm is said to have happened sometime between the Fall of Netheril in negative 339 Dale Reckoning and 760 Dale Reckoning. Some scholars have long thought that Savras may have allowed Azuth to win their battle. Savras saw something long off in the future, and by allowing Azuth to win, Savras may be able to capture a great victory for himself further down the line. When Savras himself has been questioned about this prospect, he has never provided an answer. Followers of Azuth think this is an absurd position to take, but we'll talk more about their perspective in the Azuth episode, which follows this episode. Whatever the case, Savras would fall from his status as a lesser power to that of a demi-power as he became unable to fulfill his responsibilities as a deity imprisoned as he was. His number of worshippers began to decrease as a result. Savras's last reported follower before his release was Alondo the Seer, who we will discuss later. Still quite powerful in his imprisonment, Savras disallowed Azuth the ability to divine anything from him. Savras was then later able to teleport the scepter he was imprisoned in down to the surface of Faerun after Azuth's ascension to godhood. The scepter of Savras would find its way into the hands of one of the seven sisters, Silune Silverhand. Silune would wield the scepter to achieve her own goals and ignore Savras's desire to be let free as he communicated with her. Silune would eventually turn over the scepter to Azuth after unearthing some secret about the deities of Faerun that she was better off not knowing. What she found out wasn't stated in any of the books I looked through, 
but I would be really interested to know what she found out personally. Azuth began to feel conflicted with the scepter now back in his possession. Eventually, after the time of troubles, he listened to Savras and freed the god of divination from his long imprisonment. Though under the condition that Savras swear an oath of fealty to serve Azuth. Since his release, Savras holds a cautious alliance with his former enemy and rival Azuth. Jumping forward to 1385 Dale Reckoning, Sirik, aided by Shar, made his way into Mistra's divine realm, a Dwemer heart. There, Sirik murdered Mistra, causing a cataclysm both throughout the Outer Plains and throughout Faerun. In the wave of this destruction that kicked off the Spell Plague, Savras was destroyed. Savras did return following the Second Sundering, though whether his return was heralded or some important event transpired, I don't know. It isn't mentioned in the Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide. Perhaps such details are covered in the novels that are set in this era of the Forgotten Realms, but the novels are always a major blind spot for me. Personality As a brief aside, I'd just like to talk about Deific Ranks in 5th edition. It was brought to my attention that I had blindly been assuming that the Divine Rank of Demi-Power in the 5th edition Divine Hierarchy is the same as Demi-Power in 3rd edition and older editions hierarchies. A Demi-Power is a subtype of a Quasi-Power in 5th edition. In particular, they are those Divine Beings born out of a relationship between a mortal and a deity. It is now more accurate to say a Demi-Power from a second edition and third edition, like Savras, is in fact a lesser deity in the fifth edition hierarchy. For example, the fifth edition Dungeon Master's Guide specifically calls out LaRue to be a lesser power. We know LaRue to be a demi power in second edition and third edition. Frankly, I don't like how it seems there was a combination of intermediate, lesser, and demi powers into one divine rank for fifth edition. Maybe I just like more delineation. All that to say, Savras would be considered a lesser god in 5th edition. Savras is a lawful neutral god. He is deeply introspective, thoughtful, and honest to a fault. The words Savras has for others are lacking in any emotion and often are not received well. Savras always provides multiple perspectives to complex issues, and his unbiased perspective does rub people the wrong way. He rarely has ever lost his composure, but his wrath is said to be something to behold should it manifest. Savras's emotionless disposition is thought to be a front to conceal Savras's true caring nature for the fate of Faerun, though with the realization that he cannot do anything to affect that fate. Personal Realms In the Great Wheel cosmological model used for 1st edition, 2nd edition, and is the assumed model for 5th edition, Savras has and may presently reside on the split lawful-neutral, lawful-good plane of Arcadia and the Outer Plains. Specifically, his divine realm, known as the Eye, was and may be on the second layer of Arcadia, Buxinus. Arcadia is a plane of ordered and planned bliss. Plants grow to a certain height and produce maximum yields. The rivers and streams here flow straight and when needed, curve at perfect right angles. The animals are complacent and leave people be so long as they are good or neutral in alignment. The seasons here have an exact number of days. There is a sharp change from day and night on Arcadia as well. Atop the highest mountain peak in Arcadia is what I take to be a massive object of light and darkness. The orb of day and night is a perfect sphere that emits the needed light and darkness in a perfect day and night cycle. The only issue is that there is no transitionary period between the two main phases of the day. Rather, it either immediately becomes day or night as the orb rotates across your given location. Roads and paths are numerous across Arcadia, and the locals get a bit leery and suspicious of those who step off the road and into wild spaces, unless they are a known local who works in such spaces. What's worse is that the Arcadians have become that much more paranoid after the third layer of their plane went missing and became attached to Mechanus. The plane is patrolled dutifully by the Anhariar, celestial warriors. They are the resident partitioners of Arcadia. 
They look much like they did during their lives on the prime material, though with a healthier and robust look to them. This makes any sort of mischief hard to conduct on the plane. What's more, restrictions have been put in place getting from the first layer to that of the second layer of Buxinus. The layer of Buxinus itself is one of rolling hills, circular lakes, and growing orchards with interspersed plains in between. In order to travel from the first layer to Buxinus, an individual needs to find the necessary border markers and walk through them from one plane to the next. The unfortunate thing is that given the strict nature of those who heavily guard these boundary markers, especially upon the disappearance of the third layer, usually only natives of Arcadia are given easy access to travel. There are some lesser-known paths that wind their ways through a mountain range that separates the two layers of Arcadia. But some of these paths are guarded by some unknown group of creatures said to be more powerful than even the Einhariar. Buxinus now serves as the marshalling ground for a sizable Anhariar force, gathering together with the intention of retaking the missing third layer of Arcadia back from Mechanus. In the World Tree cosmological model used for 3rd edition Forgotten Realms, Sapphras resides on a plane known as Dwalmerhart. This plane inherently enhances magic to the point that spells are enlarged, extended, and empowered. This does not incur any loss of an additional spell slots for the spell casters. Since Mistra rules over this realm, she can cancel out any of these spells at any time cast on her plane. Petitioners who come to reside on this plane look much as they did in life. Most of these petitioners are sorcerers and wizards. The player's guide to Faerun says that they only retain a fraction of their former power. Dwelmarhart is the name also given to a magnificent city built atop a high plateau where Mistra's specific realm is. Down on the rocky side of the plateau are the realms of Savras and Azuth, housed in a series of cavern systems. Savras's realm, known as the Eye, is a smaller cavern system. The Eye holds all Savras's knowledge of the past and the future. But rather than be recorded in tomes and scrolls, Savras's thoughts can be heard echoing among the various caverns. It does take a disciplined mind to mentally focus on the needed thought of interest for the listener. Allies and Allegiances Savras answers to two superiors. Meetly above him is Azuth, and above both of them is Mistra. The old rivals and enemies, Savras and Azuth, now have a professional and cautious friendship as they act in support of Mistra. How much Azuth maintains superiority over Savras in the present day, I do not know. Savras has a couple allies in the Elven Pantheon, which is also known as the Seldarim. He is allies with Labellus Enereth, the elven god of time, and Sianine Mumbo, elven goddess of dreams and the moon, among other things. Savras is on friendly terms as well with the head of the elven pantheon, Corlon, thanks to Savras's alliance with Corlon's consort, Sianine. Enemies Savras's enemies include Baal, Bane, Sirik, Lyra, Shar, Mask, and Talos. Given Savras's embodiment and insistence on the truth, it is no wonder he has enemies in Sirik, the Prince of Lies, Mask, the God of Thieves, and Alera, the Goddess of Illusions. It may be that the other gods are enemies of Savras due to their conflict with Mistra, Savras's superior. Avatar and Deity Stat Blocks the second edition stat block for Savras's avatar can be found in Powers and Pantheons. Symbols In the Faerunian Pantheon, Savras's faith has one known holy symbol, a crystal ball with a variety of different eyes floating within it. Central Dogma From Faiths and Pantheons, a third edition supplement. Quote, the blindness of mortals is the origin of all folly. Search for the truth in all things, great and small, and conceal nothing. Speak only the truth for lies and misdirection, even for benign motives, are the root of all sorrow. Be not paralyzed by indecision, but take no action without analyzing the implications. Hasty actions and decisions are rarely more beneficial than well-thought-out strategies that are revised as necessary. 
Mortals who employ only their two common eyes are essentially blind. Savras provides the third blessed eye, allowing both foresight and hindsight, so that mortals can access the omniscience of the gods. It is not wrong to use the knowledge that Savras gives you to help yourself and your church, but caution should be employed in furthering the goals of others, as part of their agenda may be hidden. Seek for the hidden motive before you act, and damage not the whole of the realm in which you live out your mortal life. End quote. Presence of the Faith Those who worship Savras tend to be diviners, judges, monks, truth-seekers, and various spellcasters. Some of these people carry elaborate and decorated staffs in veneration of Savras. Such staffs are representative of Savras's time stuck in imprisonment. The holders of these staffs believe that Savras might find their staff a welcoming place to visit for a short time. His clerics are most often of a lawful good, lawful neutral, and lawful evil alignment. Arcane spellcasters who primarily follow Savras are wizards and bards, with few sorcerers given their limited access to divination spells. Alondo the Seer is Savras's most famous worshipper. Alondo came to the famed Library of Candlekeep in the first century Dale Reckoning to study. During his time there, Alondo received numerous prophetic visions. Alondo's prophecies were recorded and are still honored by the avowed the monks who tend to the great library. Though the avowed are not devotees of Savras, but other deities. Throughout all hours of the day and night, the endless chant recites Alondo's prophecies as they travel the halls. While Alondo prophesied, his audible words were recorded by magical gemstones. These stones are known as the Echoes of Alondo. Each gemstone contains one of his prophecies recited in an ancient form of common. The echoes are stored in Candlekeep's basement floors. These prophecies can be easily misinterpreted, so they are rarely consulted. Only high-ranking avowed seem capable of hearing the words contained in these stones. Several of the prophecies of Alondo have come to fruition. A common practice among young people is to say a small rhyme invoking Savras's name while gazing into a mirror. The hope is that they can divine the name of a future spouse from this practice. Savras and his faithful have long been known for a poor reputation. This stemmed from the need to state the truth even when unlooked for. What is more, Azu's faith did no favors by sullying the reputation of what was perceived to be a rival faith. Following Savras's release and emergence once more after the time of troubles, the current faith of Savras aimed to repair this perception while the Azuthans have curtailed their complaints and ridicule. Savras's worship fell to almost complete nothingness in the majocracy of Halrua after his defeat to Azuf. Following his release, however, sects to the god of divination began cropping up. These groups of Savras's faithful, just as all of them are, do still fall under the supervision and rule of the Azuthan faith, however. Hierarchy and Structure of the Clergy The faith of Savras is small though organized. The majority of Savras's clergy are known as divinators. Some divinators choose to be wandering prophets, some choose to live out in remote areas as oracles, while others take on a legal function. Those civil servants act as legal consultants, witnesses, magistrates, and judges. The ranks of Savras's faith in ascending order are as follows. Truth-seekers, who are the novices of the faith. Truth-speakers, the first rank of the full clergy. Savants, scholars, sages, clairvoyants, soothsayers, prophesizers, prophets, and finally, oracles. Higher-ranking clergy adopt unique titles for themselves, a tradition carried on from the time of Savras' imprisonment. Responsibilities and Duties of the Faithful Clerics may investigate events in the past through their own divinations and learn to deal with the consequences of potentially uncovering unwanted truths. Other clerics stress divining the future. Those in particular who look forward often gather for extended meetings with their fellows to prepare as best as possible for those events yet to come. 
It is encouraged by Severus directly to always analyze a given situation before his clergy act. They are also to be frank and bluntly honest with others. While the clergy and followers of Severus may provide divinations for others, they must attempt to discern what motives people have in wanting divinations done for them, then refusing if they disagree with the individual's true intentions. Divination magic is taught to be used in a restrictive fashion and not to be used far too frequently. From a more altruistic perspective, Savras's followers are told to warn others of possible destruction and disasters when they divine them. Orders and Priestly Bodies The Sibylline Sisterhood are a group of itinerant female oracles who travel throughout western Faerun. They provide visions and fortune-telling to rich and poor alike. They aim to exact a fee for the services fair to that of a given person's wealth. Most things revealed can seem vague and obscure at the time, but usually with hindsight, it becomes clear just how prophetic these revelations were. Many of the Sisterhood practice lesser magics, but few are capable adventurers themselves. The Guardians of the Weave is a loose organization of spellcasters who combat evil spellcasters, the evil deities of magic, and those who look to damage the weave. Specifically in the 3rd edition era of the realms, they were at odds with Shar and her followers as they fought incursions of the Shadow Weave throughout the continent. The group is bound by love for magic and they do not want to see the weave being harmed to any extent. The symbol of the Guardians is a golden web held within a circle to represent the weave. Members may display this as a brooch or amulet or keep it hidden. But each member's symbol serves as a way of tracking one another. The Benign Order of the Third Eye is a surprisingly secretive order of clergy devoted to Savras. They formed in 1371 Dale Reckoning on the Feast of the Moon. Their founding was preceded by the same strange vision experienced by worshippers in many different places of worship across Faerun. In this vision, a purple storm approached a vineyard, and in this vineyard, the grapes on the vine were instead replaced by heavy white and purple crystal balls. Members of this order travel to various holy sites of differing faiths, attempting to accumulate as much information about the divine as possible. They are told to be respectful of these sites and those who worship there, but they have garnered a bit of a reputation for overstepping themselves. The Benign Order was attempting in their early years, it would seem, to collect this knowledge in anticipation with some conflict with Cyric. Now with the Spell Plague in the past, I do have to wonder if this order still exists. But that's a decision you can make in your own world building. Appearance and Dress The clergy of Savras wear pale yellow robes with Savras' symbol sewn onto the chest. They wear simple sandals, and around their waist they garb themselves with a sash of a given muted color. Upon their forehead, each full clergy member has a tattoo inked in the image of Savras's third eye. Higher-ranking clergy members, or potentially those other clergy of wealthy status, have clear or white gemstones bonded in the center of this tattoo. When adventuring, the clergy of Savras go without armor and edged weapons. Given their prowess with divination, they often have insight into the equipment they might need for an upcoming adventure. Thus, they often turn up having packed odd and unusual items. Then, to everyone's surprise except their own, these items go on to serve some purpose during an adventure. Rituals Clerics of Savras meditate and reflect on their spells at nighttime. They do this over an extended period of peaceful meditation as they reflect on what they may anticipate in the coming day. As it is, the faithful Saras begin and end each of their days with periods of long meditation. The Feast of the Moon that takes place between the months of Uktar and Nightal is celebrated as the vision in Savras's faith. The vision is observed by Savras's followers by staying in a state of continuous meditation for a 24-hour period. Some may house themselves in saunas and steam baths. Others may sit within a haze of incense. Those who complete the 24-hour long ritual are rewarded with a vision from Savras. In the coming days, those who receive these visions are expected to keep this knowledge to themselves or suffer the consequences of Savras's anger. General Locations of Places of Worship 
5th edition's Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide tells us that Savaras has no known active temples across all the continent. Even more to that point, a few shrines built in his name tend to be hidden somewhat in the libraries and scriptoria of the continent. But from sources from past editions, we do know the names and descriptions of some of these places that are either abandoned, in ruin, or being rebuilt, or newly built. Each place of worship dedicated to Savras was dominated by a large and sacred marble statue of Savras. These statues display Savras sitting on an onyx dais in a meditative pose. Savras's hands are turned up in a supplicative gesture. He looks forward with a seemingly blank stare. And in the center of his third eye upon his brow is a crystal or gemstone. These stones or crystals are said to be magic items, though no description or suggestion of these powers are noted. These statues were more often than not placed in large chambers with massive columns supporting the roof. Access to these chambers were allowed through windows and doors that would open and close, much like that of the iris of an eye. The walls of these holy places were carved and inscribed with depictions of the future and past that have been divined by the faithful over countless years. Typically, such depictions took the form of hieroglyphics. Specific Locations of Places of Worship A small shrine of Sarras can be found within the Library of Candlekeep. This is said to be the only active place of worship to Savras in the north of Faerun. The shrine is known as the Hall of Pools and Mirrors and was, and maybe now is once again, maintained by a high-level Savras clergy member known by the title of the Sibylline Farsight. The walls and floors of the shrine are filled with all sorts of mundane and magical scrying devices. Such devices include mirrors, pools, telescopes, and crystal balls. In particular, there are reported to be three crystal balls that hold the essences of three past powerful diviners faithful to Savras. These sentient crystal balls are known as crystal liches, a strange and rare variation on lichdom. These immensely powerful crystal balls allow for scrying into any place on Faerun and across the plains. Better yet, spells can be cast from these crystal liches at these places they scry upon. After his release from the scepter of Savras, a temple was rebuilt to become the center of Savras's worship in Tashluta. The House of the All-Seeing Orb was, and maybe still is, a large temple complex watched over by a powerful member of Savras's clergy known as the Farseer. Over a thousand scholars were said to live here, working out of the College of Divination, the Celestial Observatory, and the Library of Ultimate Truth. The Savras faithful here took particular issue with a given sect of Talona worshippers in the region. A long-forgotten temple to Savras is said to be located somewhere within Undermountain beneath the city of Waterdeep. An adventuring band is said to have taken a priceless crystal relic from the temple known as the Third Eye of Savras. By removing this relic, a large portion of the temple collapsed in on itself. Not only that, the adventuring group lost the relic somewhere in Undermountain as they work their way back up to the surface. Savras's faithful have never been able to scry upon this relic, unfortunately, with Halester's many enchantments and wards in place, shielding his mega-dungeon from such things. In the drow city of Shamath, the worship of the drow pantheon, let alone Lolth, is valued far less than most drow settlements. As a result, small sects devoted to some surface deities have arisen, including Savras. Sendren looks to outsiders to be nothing more than a stock village. However, long ago when Savras was at his height of power, Sendren served as a center for his worship and the celebration of the arcane. Before being defeated by Azuth, both Savras and Azuth attempted to lay claim to the portfolio of wizards. Thus Savras's faith in those days were far more varied in the practice of magics, rather than their focus now on divination almost solely. Old abandoned stone buildings stand as relics of this time where they used to house wizards and magical shops. A temple to Savras used to exist here until it was utterly destroyed by Azuthans following Savras's fall to their patron. What remains of the temple is a blasted crater found in the backyard of a local inn. In the midst of this overground crater is a large stone idol of Savras's head called the Mouth of Savras. This idol levitates in the air as soon as a creature steps within the crater. The idol itself is about as tall as the average human, 
questions can be directed to the idol, and it will respond in kind with its own cryptic answers. However, those who have studied the idol have documented how it has its own roster of sock phrases it responds in kind with. The mouth can cast curative magics upon those who touch it automatically. Almost as if the idol can sense what ailment, curse, or enchantment an individual is under. What is interesting about Sendrin's association with Savras is just how far away it is from the center of Savras's regional worship in the past in the south of Faerun. The Temple of the Splendor of Splendors may have been a temple to Savras that housed an important magic item of his faith. This former temple lies underground somewhere in rural Chacenta. The clergy who used to inhabit this place were killed off by creatures, but what type of clergy they were goes unsaid. The temple has since been a house for several different monsters and a target of four daring adventuring groups. The Splendor of Splendors itself is called out as an important magic item to Savras's faith. This sentient magic item holds within it the collected intellect of several different wizards who serve Savras. A sourcebook calls out that this gem could still be down in the temple, but just as easily could have been taken elsewhere long ago. A shrine to Savras can be found a few miles south of Conaberry. For seeing an attack, the clergy here brought all the townsfolk to the temple to find refuge. Rather than have all their gold out in the open, the clergy melted down all the town's gold and formed it into a new bell for the shrine. This golden bell still hangs in the shrine to this day. The townsfolk and clergy were unfortunately slaughtered still. The shrine has since passed through the hands of various different nefarious creatures. The Temple of Savras can be found in Port Nyan Zaru, out on Chult. This temple is one of the oldest and largest buildings in the city. The roof here is domed and shaped to look like an unblinking eye looking up at the sky. Before the spell plague, the clergy base out of this temple did much to keep the activities of the local Yonti in check. Presently, they mostly deal with more mundane tasks, but are still appreciated by the locals. Character Options for 2nd edition, a breakdown for the Savras-specific specialty priest, the Sibylite, can be found in Face and Pantheons. Much like I do in every episode, the following is just a breakdown of the features I think someone deeply involved in Savras's faith as an acolyte or otherwise would have for a custom background in 5th edition. For your two skill proficiencies, Arcana and History. For your two language or tool proficiencies, I would say Navigator's Tools and Calligrapher's Supplies. Navigator's Tools, since they would be reading the stars using such tools, which is often a method used to divine the future. Though it isn't stated, I get the impression that Savras Clergy does record what the divine quite often, so thus that's why I recommend Calligrapher's Supplies. For the background's equipment, there's the Acolytes in the Player's Handbook, the Hermits and Sages from the Player's Handbook as well, though I would use some of that gold there to start off with the Holy Symbol. And finally, the Cloistered Scholar from Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide. Again, using the starting gold from that background for a Holy Symbol. For the ribbon feature that is attached to every background, there's the Acolytes Shelter of the Faithful, Cloistered Scholar's Library Access, the Hermit's Discovery, which is very apt for a Savras worshipper, and the Sage's Researcher. Finally, here is a list of subclasses I think that would be thematically appropriate for a NPC or PC to take if they are a worshipper of Savras. For the Cleric, there's the Domain of Knowledge Cleric from Player's Handbook, and the Arcana Domain Cleric from Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide. For the Sorcerer, there's the Divine Soul Sorcerer from Xanathar's Guide to Everything, for the Warlock, there's the Celestial Patron Warlock from Xanathar's Guide to Everything. And for the Wizard, there's the School of Divination from the Player's Handbook, and the Scribe's Wizard from Tashro's Cauldron of Everything. Dungeon Master Options First, I'd like to touch on monsters that are currently available to us in official 5th edition sources that are used by Savras's Faith, as mentioned in some sourcebooks, and I also do mention a few here that I think would be appropriate, despite not being officially tied to Savras. From the Monster Manual, there's the Spectator, the Cat, the Coatl, the Androsphinx, 
the Gynal Sphinx, and the Guardian Naga. From Gilmaster's Guide to Ravnica, though you'd have to reflavor these monsters given their association with a non-Faerunian supplement, there's the Felidar, Esperia, who is a named Sphinx of Great Power, and the Sphinx of Judgment. Following that, I'd just like to touch on some monsters that are currently not offered officially in physician sources, but are tied to Savras's faith. The Demorax is a lumbering, more often than not, peaceful creature that looks like a gem-covered crocodile. Running along its hide are hundreds of crystals of varying colors. A Demorax subsists only on items known as spell crystals that are said to form after certain spells are cast. I do not know if that's a second edition thing or just a planescape thing. By eating these spell crystals, the Demorax rejuvenates and maintains its hide. A Demorax has such a one-track mind in consuming these crystals that they will not hesitate to harm others to get at them. Such creatures are remarkably well protected both from spells and from physical attacks. A Demorax will lash out with its heavy tail if need be or cast magic missiles from its eyes. If cornered, it may even release a storm of scything spell crystals. A Demorax can be found in 2nd edition's Planescape Compendium Appendix 2. A spell haunt is said to form after a given spell is cast in a location it should not have been and under exacting circumstances. The spell haunt forms into a vaguely humanoid shape and exhibits qualities like the spell itself. For example, a spell haunt born out of a cloud kill spell would look like a hanging mass of toxic yellow vapors. A spell haunt takes on a form of limited sentience, but then begins to slowly fade almost immediately, as they must then seek out magic of some sort to feed upon. They will attack those with the most magical items and effects active on them, stealing away that energy from themselves should they hit with their grasping ethereal pseudopods. These creatures are immune to such a wide variety of magic, save those spells that might absorb, negate, dispel, and or cancel magic themselves. The spell haunt can be found in 2nd edition's Planescape Compendium Appendix 2. Purrs are grim-looking outer-planar warriors who guard portals to the upper planes. They look like humans wearing ornate steel or bronze armor and wield sentient frost-branded greatswords. Purrs have true sight and are never surprised. They have an innate aura that surrounds them at all times, just as if a continuous shield spell has been cast upon them. They are fanatical and will not abandon their posts. Deific-level entities that may be concerned about a given portal will be alerted psychically by any purrs they share a small mental link with, if said sortals come into question. Purrs can be found in 2nd edition's Monstrous Compendium Appendix. Coming out of a swirling vortex in many colors is a wizardly entity with blazing, pupilless eyes. Such creatures are known as Wizshades. The Wizshade and its vortex are formed out of the energy known as the Phlogiston that exists past the crystal spheres the planets of the Prime Material are held in. Those of you who are familiar with Spelljammer likely know what I'm talking about. The Wizshade is thus innately tied to the Phlogiston and can travel there at any time. A Wizshade may even allow people to pass through with them. A Wizshade is a mercurial creature, sometimes aiding or sometimes harming those they come across. They have access to a random roster of spells that they use in combat. Quite literally, a dungeon master is to roll for which level of spell is going to be cast, then rolling again among all spell availables at that level on the wizard's spell list. Wizshades can be found in 2nd edition's Monstrous Compendium Spelljammer Appendix, Willow's Guide to All Things Magical, and the Ruins of Hunter Mountain box set. Rounding out the section on monster and NPC stat blocks, we'll just talk about a list of humanoid NPC stat blocks to represent various Savras worshippers and clergy, found in official 5th edition sources. Keep in mind with the spellcasters, you can always swap out their list of spells for other spells more fitting to the themes you're trying to get at. From the monster manual, there's the Acolyte, Priest, Archmage, and Mage. From Volo's Guide to Monsters, there's the Diviner and Apprentice Wizard. From the Lost Minds of Van Delver, there's the Evil Mage. 
And from Mythic Odysseys of Theros, there is the Oracle. Alright, let's talk about some magic items. The Skull of Alondo, as the name suggests, is the Skull of Alondo the Seer. This relic is not only revered by Savras, but also the face of Denier and Ogma. After he died, it is said that Alondo's skull was quickly removed from his dead body and stolen away. Its last known location was the markets of Lorboth, the capital of Earl Khazar. This relic is prized since someone can cast speak with dead upon it and receive answers from one of the most important prophets to ever walk Faerun. No other magical properties the skull may have are described, however. Histockel's Dark Throne is a magical artifact and, as the name suggests, a throne. Those who merely touch the throne have a certain ability of theirs augmented following a long rest. However, someone who sits upon the throne for an hour learns all details of an artifact and magic item that they wield, hidden or otherwise. The throne is thought by some to be one of the last manifestations and creations of Savras back when he was a stronger, lesser deity. At the same time, however, others contend that it is solely related to Ogma, or its creation was a joint effort between Azuth, Mistra, and Ogma. Histockel may have been an ancient Netherese wizard who came to Hawkgarth Forest. Here he remains as a demi-lich floating above his throne. Details for the throne can be found in the 5th edition supplement, The Border Kingdoms. Now to talk about the Scepter of Savras itself. Savras is no longer imprisoned within the scepter, but the scepter still functions just the same. It is a four-foot-long staff carved from smoky gray duskwood. Along its length are nine embedded star sapphires. The bottom is capped with a one-inch diamond engraved with Savras's symbol. The top is capped with a three-inch diamond engraved with Azuth's symbol. After Azuth released Savras from the scepter, the scepter vanished before the eyes of the gods. It is one of a few artifacts that the realm's deities are blind to and have to rely on traditional means to discern where such items may be found. Some rumors of the scepter have been heard since Savrash's release, so it is very likely that it rests somewhere down in Faerun. The following abilities are taken from 2nd edition sources, so keep that in mind when certain features and modifiers are stated. It functions as a plus 5 quarterstaff in battle. After a creature is struck by the scepter, the wielder may attempt to imprison a creature within the scepter. Should the hit creature fail saving throw, they are imprisoned. On the off chance the wielder strikes the avatar of a given deity, and the avatar fails the saving throw, the entire essence of that deity in realm space gets drawn into the scepter and imprisoned as well. The wielder can release those imprisoned in the scepter by striking the base of the scepter on the ground and then stating the creature or entity's complete and true name three times in succession. There is an inherent 1% chance per day that the scepter may teleport to a random place on Faerun. Any non-divine being imprisoned is unable to communicate to the wielder of the scepter, though they are well aware of their imprisonment, but do not age. For every day that passes, the chances the imprisoned creature goes mad is increased by 3% cumulatively. The scepter has powers imbued upon it, depending on which deity last was imprisoned within it. Currently, the last and only deity to be imprisoned within the scepter was Savras. Should another divine being be trapped inside, the imbued powers would slowly change to reflect that imprisoned being. These powers can be activated by speaking the divine being's name and stating which powers desired. Since Savras was the last one within the scepter, the following powers are intrinsic to it. Access to any spell from the Divination School of Magic, 9th level or lower. Access to any spell that obscures divination spells, such as misdirection. And the diamond on the top of the scepter functions as a crystal ball. A spellcaster who is 9th level or higher can peer into the diamond and scry upon any location on Faerun or any location tied to a realm-specific entity in the inner and outer planes so long as it isn't warded against such things by a divine power. A creature's thoughts can also be read if they are centered in the viewpoint of the diamond as well. The scepter bears a curse if a deity is trapped within it. For every day that passes, the chance for a wielder to be driven mad goes up cumulatively by 1%. Divine powers trapped within it can make use of any psionic or magical abilities their avatar possesses that do not require a body to manifest. 
the divine power will strive to offer anything to get the wielder to release them from within the scepter. It is not these promises, however, that drive the wielder mad. It is the continual proximity to a divine power. The only way a creature is not affected by this curse is if the wielder shares the same alignment as the divine power. They are a devout worshipper of that given divine power, or they carry some divine essence themselves. Since Siluni Silverhand, the former wielder of the Scepter of Savras, is a chosen Amistra, she was not subject to this curse. The details for the Scepter can be found in 2nd edition's Volo's Guide to All Things Magical. Next, I'd just like to talk about some magical items from official 5th edition sources that I think the Faith of Savras may have access to. From the Dungeon Master's Guide, there's the plus 1 to plus 3 Wand of the War Mage. Amulet of Proof Against Detection and Location. The Various Crystal Ball Variants. The Gem of Seeing. Headband of Intellect. Helm of Telepathy. The Ion Stones of Awareness, Insight, Intellect, and Mastery. Medallion of Thoughts. Potion of Clairvoyance. Potion of Comprehension. Potion of Mind Reading. Ring of Mind Shielding. Ring of Telekinesis. Rod of Alertness. Tome of Clear Thought, Tome of Understanding, Wand of Magic Detection, and the Weapons of Warning. From Explorer's Guide to Wildmount, there's the Goggles of Object Reading. From Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, there's the Astromancy Archive and the Crystal Chronicle. And finally, from Candlekeep Mysteries, there's the Staff of Fate. Alright, with that, thank you for listening to Religion in the Realms. If you're interested in keeping up with the release of future episodes, you can follow the podcast Twitter account at Realms Religion. These episodes are uploaded to YouTube. The podcast YouTube channel can be found under Religion in the Realms. Audio versions of the podcast can also be found on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play Podcasts. If you wish to get in touch with me or just want to chat, my personal Twitter is at Shizembrace, or you can send an email to realmsreligion at gmail.com, all in lowercase. Next episode, we will cover the last of the deities who fall under Mistress' supervision, Azuth, the lawful neutral god of wizards. Until next time, may Timora look kindly upon your dice rolls, Helm protect you, and Lathander light your path. Music for this episode, The Watcher, by Ian Grimm.